Thank you, Mark. Um, I, <clears throat> as Mark and I were talking this morning, um, I was telling him that um, I'm thankful for this. Um, I'm thankful that we've built this into the rhythm of our church because um, it really is the rhythm of God's kingdom um, throughout history, um, throughout redemption. Um, the one mark of God is amongst his people, the repeated phrase is, I will give you rest. Um, and we're, we're very thankful uh, for this. Oftentimes, we forget that the, sh- the shepherd needs to be a sheep sometimes, too. Um, so we're looking forward to being a sheep for a few months. We'll be around here some. Um, we'll be away some. You, we're not disappearing off the face of this earth or even out of the life of our congregation. Just taking a little bit of a break for a few months. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're new to the Bible um, or unfamiliar with it, um, maybe just checking out Jesus this week um, and his church, we've got pew Bibles in front of you. You can take one of those home. If you don't have one, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. We're going to actually pick up reading at verse 31 of chapter 12. Is that me? Am I, is my mic bad? Do I need to switch to, to here? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 31, then reading all the way through the end of chapter 13. This is God's word. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will still show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
Would you pray with me before the Father of lights who loves his people and ask his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, you've known us fully. You've known the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts, places where we even are afraid to look. You, you've looked there and know us there and in Christ love us. And you've given your spirit to shed your love abroad in our hearts so that we might know the love that you have for us in deep and profound ways and be rooted and grounded in that love. And so that's our prayer. Holy Spirit, come with great power and root us again in the love of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray this in your name. Our Savior, Amen. There's a there's an irony, I think, in the movement towards self love, the emphasis on self love and self care, and the irony is that we are just naturally really hard on ourselves. Even to look inward to say we've got to love ourselves because no one else will love it. The irony is that we are quite hard on ourselves. Because if we're honest, that's just the natural disposition of our hearts towards everyone. We are quite critical. We are quite hard on others. We are quite overbearing at times we lack patience and that natural disposition of our heart doesn't naturally even though we're bent towards loving ourselves naturally out of the womb as all of world history has proven we are quite critical even on ourselves we have a deep disposition that finds it difficult to love even ourselves is the greatest object of our love, if we're quite honest. This is a chapter that's often read at weddings because it's deeply poetic. It shows up oftentimes in anthologies of timeless poetry. It's so well written that even poets who aren't followers of Jesus will grab hold of it and speak of its beauty. Paul does break out into a hymn here that commentators debate whether this was sung as a hymn in the early church. And we need to remember, though, in this chapter of life in the church of God, that that this chapter, verse 13, chapter 13, really comes in this broader context of Paul dealing with particular issues in the church. One of them is division within the church of Jesus Christ. But even more narrowly, he begins this section starting in 12.1 with a discussion on the use of gifts within the church of Jesus Christ. We do a disservice to this passage and abstract it from the context of the church that's in quite a mess and pull it out just to examine love. It's love in a context. More specifically, it's given in the love in the context of people who don't love each other very well. 
This is a church that Paul had planted 18 months prior. It was a new church plant, a church that had all come, all of them had new Christians who had come to faith in Christ just 18 months earlier, but quickly resorted right back to a great degree of unrest and lack of love for one another. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to try to spend two weeks on this passage. This week, we're really going to focus on the first seven verses as a picture of God's love for his people. Next week, we're going to look at the last portion in greater degree for and we'll focus on what it looks like to love others. These two overlap. They're like they're like a Venn diagram. There's a great deal of overlap between the two, because here's why we will never. This is the premise of the gospel. We will never be able to love anyone until we are deeply rooted in God's love for us in Christ. And God's love for us as we're fully known as sinners who are fully loved in Christ. And what will come, as we'll see in weeks to come, what comes at the end of the age is a full taste of what we already possess. We'll know fully then, even now, as we're fully known. We'll see dimly. We live on this side of the fall, on this side of corrupted by sin. We're not yet yet having been fully glorify but that doesn't change the degree of God's love it only changes our experience of it the Bible assumes that because sin runs so deep in all of our hearts that we are so broken by sin that we will be like every generation so fully in love with ourselves even as poorly as we love ourselves so fully in love with ourselves that we'll find conflict arises within our community here's the reality if you're a visitor learn this If you're not yet a Christian, learn this. The church is not a safe place. It's a place where sinners find their safety in Jesus. And as a result, we're thrust into relationships with each other. And that's going to mean that we rub each other wrong. We step on each other's toes. We hurt each other and need forgiveness. It's a place where we learn to deal with our conflict in a different way because we're rooted in God's love for us in Christ. But here's again the assumption of the Bible. We will never be able to love in the ways that God calls us to unless we're first fully rooted and deeply rooted in God's love for us in Christ. Paul just starts this section, as I mentioned, not to abstract for chapter 13 from the broader discussion. He starts us back in chapter 12, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, look there. He begins this now concerning spiritual. Our translation says gifts. I've, I suggested a few weeks ago that this really is a discussion on the work of God, the Holy Spirit, not primarily spiritual gifts. That's an interpretive detail. Um, that we're adding in. It's really just now concerning spiritual or the spiritual things or the spiritual ones, those who have the Holy Spirit. And chapter 13, really in this discussion on what God the Holy Spirit is doing, chapter 13 really is the crescendo. This is what God the Holy Spirit is doing. He is developing the love that God has for His people within the hearts of his people, so that his people become a a work of love. Not primarily about spiritual gifts, but the work of the Spirit. In fact, that's Paul's point. Paul's point is that the crescendo isn't that God's people do amazing things for God, but that God's people 
have experienced the power of God the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this is what God the Holy Spirit does. Displays His great power in creating a people who are full of love for one another. And that's not just sentimental love. That's actual costly love. And so that Paul can say in the book of Ephesians, this is why the Spirit's been given to you, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the full knowledge of the love of God. What does it take for God to convince you that his love for you as as deep and profound as it is, it takes a work of God the Spirit in all of his power so that you could comprehend what is incomprehensible. What will we do for all eternity? Begin to fathom, just begin to fathom the tremendous love for God. And I'm convinced a thimbleful in our daily lives, just a thimbleful of that experience of the sweet water of God's deep, passionate, and particular love is enough to satisfy the most dissatisfied part. But love isn't for something that God does. It's first something that He is. There's this, there's this premise in theology that just we can just bank on, and it's this. God is as He does. That's not the case with most of us. We have aspirational goals, and we have the reality of our lives. This is why we have a word like hypocrisy. All the church is full of hypocrites. We are not who we aspire to be. We wish we were different. That gap is so vast that it requires the atonement of sins. That atonement flows out of God's love, but not with God. God is as He does. There are no aspirational Goals. This is not something God says, this is who I want to be towards you. But God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It is not something that He simply does. It is who He is. What was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit doing before He created mankind? Love flowing between them. Dancing in love. The Father in love with the Son. The Son with the Father. The Father and the Spirit in love with each other. What is the bond that keeps them together and flows between them? It is love. God is love. It is not something that He does. They were passionately adoring each other with a deep affection. And what Jesus says is that you come to me and this is what will happen. The love that my father has for me, he'll, I'll have for you and he'll have for you. You'll be invited into this relationship. It's not just this abstract theological principle. It's essential to know this is who God is. He is love. And because he created the world, he created the world to run on the fuel of his love. That's the great tragedy of sin, is that we try to love on, we try to run on other fuels besides the love that God has for his people. And one of the greatest tragedies of sin is that now his love is intermingled with his wrath because of sin. This requires the cross that becomes both the display of God's love and the display of His justice. So that His love and His mercy combine in the wrath-atoning sacrifice of His Son so that when now wrath is removed, only love remains. C.S. Lewis makes this distinction. 
He makes this distinction in his, his book on love, the four loves. He makes this distinction between gift love and need love. It's a helpful distinction. Gift love is love that gives. It's love that moves out. It's love that, that goes and does for the sake of others. Need love is love that takes out of necessity. Need love is hungry. Need love consumes Gift love is satisfied, and so it it is able to go out and move out and give generously. He says this, quote, Need love cries out to God from our poverty. Gift love longs to serve, even suffer for God. Appreciative love, love that says, I give thanks to you for your great glory. But on the opposite end, need love says says of a woman, "I, I can't live without her. Or of a job, I can't live without it. Or of the affection of our children, I can't live without it. Gift love longs to give. Longs to give even if it doesn't receive. He says, gift love longs to give to the woman that you say, instead of saying, I love, I cannot live without her. Gift love gives her happiness, gives her comfort, gives her protection, if possible, wealth. Even, even, if she rejoices not for him. It gives. It gives and it gives. Gift love, he goes on, he says this, will not be wholly dejected by losing her, but would rather have it so than never to have seen her at all. God is the only one capable of that kind of love. God's the only one capable of gift love. In God, there's no need for love. He has no need love in himself. There's no lacking that needs to be filled. His love is so plenteous, it's overflowing. He is compelled by his own nature to give love because God is love. Jonathan Edwards makes this point in his tremendous sermon heaven is a world of love he says because heaven is the place where God dwells it is a place where love dwells in abundance and he dwells there primarily as the object not primarily as the object of love that's not primarily what's going on in heaven that's only secondarily what's going on in heaven is God is the object of love It's true in his church too. It's not primarily that God is the object of the love of his people, that first God is the fountain of love. He isn't the one who receives love, but the one who gives because he is the God who's love and he's made his people to be the object of his love. And only when they become the objects of his love are they able to then give love. You see, God's designed us He has the capacity for gift love alone. But he's designed us as created beings. And that means he's designed us with need love. Created as an object of God's love out of the overflow of his love, we were made to dwell in his love and will not be satisfied until his love becomes the root the ground, the solid foundation, the overabundance, the all-sufficient thing that we need. That's why self-love doesn't work. It's like trying to solve a vacuum with a vacuum. 
just going to spiral into itself even more. You're just going to strengthen the void when we do that. What makes our relationships so broken within the church, within our marriages, it just breaks it down so much, is that what we try to get from each other is enough to satisfy the need love instead of going to the giver of love. At best, all I'm trying to do in those situations isn't this where disappointment creeps in and then disappointment creates, creates resentment? I had expectations of you that you would satisfy this for me. You did not do it. You let me down. Therefore, I resent you. And this then creates this performance mindset that's so detrimental to our relationships in the church where we use then our giftedness to triumph over one another where our gifts are more important than the ones we give it to, where our insights are more important than what they offer to the church, that the actual gift is more important than the giving of gift for the benefit of others. And this is Paul's point in verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That just so transforms it that the, the greatest gift, like if I can speak as eloquently as possible, but it is not out of a sense of I'm giving a gift for the benefit of others, then I'm just, I'm just this racket that ruins the room. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mercies and all knowledge and I have all faith as to move mountains, but I've got love, I've got nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not loved, I have gained nothing. Satan can perform amazing things. He too can perform signs and wonders. He matched all of Moses' miracles in the Exodus deliverance, but a couple. But what he is not capable of doing he can create amazingly gifted movements who can create a, a, amazing things in this world and perform amazing signs and wonders. But what he cannot create are people who love. Because what gifted men and Satan cannot do is what the Spirit of God alone can do. And what he can alone can produce is to create people who operate for the sake of others. Because God has operated for the sake of us in Christ. It's not a safe place. It's a place where we dwell in the safety of the love of God for us in Christ. J.I. Packer in Knowing God, he, he talking about revival. This is the real mark of revival. Revival will not express itself in hankering after tongues, but rather in a longing that the Spirit may shed God's love abroad in our hearts with greater power. For it is with this to which deep exercise of the soul about sin is often preliminary, right? And that is, he's created what God often does before he moves. The predecessor for revival is deep conviction of sin. God's breaking us so that we might say, if you would love this man, 
as wicked and selfish and proud as he is, if you had loved this man, then that would be the most profound thing I would experience. That's often why conviction of sin is a predecessor to true revival. God is preparing the soil for us to experience this deep love. But first, it's the love of self that we have to be convicted of. That personal revival is sustained by this movement of the Spirit. Anybody can produce a great movement, but only the Spirit of God can, can produce a great movement of a love for God that also creates a love for others. Because in all things, in all things within Jesus' body, the church, even our love needs to take the form of the cross. Of Christ Jesus and Him crucified. An illustrator sat down with some kids and described. He said to him, "This is what I want you to do. I want you. I'll dis, you describe love. I'll illustrate what you're describing." It's a, it's a YouTube video. It's a it's a profound exercise. It's very interesting. One of the kids. It's very difficult to do. Like even if I were to stop now and just think for a minute, jot down what is love. Describe love. It's a very difficult thing to describe. And yet, we'll see in a second, Paul does a pretty amazing job of it. One of the kids says, love is hamburger and french fries. Kind of like, you know what, it, that's good, I like that. Another one says, love feels like Sprite because it makes me tickle. And then the kids, as you can imagine, the video gets honest. One, actually more than one kid says, love is scary. There's a sense of vulnerability in that, isn't there? This was my favorite description. Love is like a lollipop with a scorpion inside. But notice that's the typical move. We, by default, describe love in how it makes us feel, as if the locus for love is my reception of it. How does it affect me? But you see what Paul's doing here is he is redefining love not as how it affects me internally, but what love does. All of the descriptions of love in verses 4 through 7 are actually verbs. It's lost in the translate. It's very difficult to translate what Paul is doing here. But in every single one of these instances, what he describes is a doing verb. It is, a, is an action, not primarily how you feel about it, but what God has done. And as a result, love does things for others. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, love is not blind. That's the last thing that love is. Love is bound. It binds itself to someone. And the more it's bound, the less blind it is. True love moves out. It doesn't overlook in blindness, but sees the worst and then moves in action towards it. Love does something for the benefit of others. God never calls His people to do anything that he hasn't already done for us in Christ. This is the heart of the, the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian life. God never calls us to do something for him that he has not already done for us in Christ. Love moves out. So this verse 4 through 7 really is not just a command as to what love looks like, 
for his people, but a command of what love has done for us in Christ. And then only secondarily, what is done for his people. It is a full on description of the love of God manifest in Christ Jesus and him crucified. Because true love doesn't move out and overlook in blindness. It sees the worst and moves toward and works in love. It is gift love. And so it's measurable. Love is measurable. Here are some measurable verbs. That's what verbs do. They give us something to measure. Because it's doing. Love moves out. Three. I'm going to summarize these seven or eight things with three points. Love moves out. Contrast this with verse 1 through 3. Where where the whole movement is towards me of prophetic powers. I understand all mysteries. I have all faith. I can move mountains, but I don't have love. All I'm doing is moving things towards myself. I deliver up my body, be burned. I can do all of these things, but if the, if the, if the working of those things is not out of an outworking of love, then it's just an inworking of self. Verse 4, as a result, love moves out. Love is patient. And kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's God's great delight that He might love His people. And move out graciously to redeem sinners. This is Paul's point in election. Even in the election of, of God's people. is choosing a people for himself. And he, in Ephesians chapter 1 he makes this point. Why did God choose you? If you're in Christ it's because he initiated. He looked in history past And he said, that one out of the whole lump of hell-bound sinners, that one I'll redeem. Why? In love, God predestined you. Why did God choose you? Because he loved you. When? Before the foundation of the world. When? Before you did anything good in this world. When you were a child of wrath under his condemnation, he moved out in love, plucked you and said, I'll redeem you. You, it moves out. And then love is identified in all of these things. It moves out to, it, you might even say it moves out to us at our worst. When we are the most unlovable. It's patient as a result, kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It just assumed. Do you understand the basic assumption is here? Like, we live in a group of people. We aren't easy to love. This is the baseline assumption. People aren't easy to love. Now, if that's news to you, then I'm sorry I had to break it, but we are, people are not easy to love. It's just the baseline assumption. But so love moves out at great cost. Second, love is measured by who it identifies with. Because again... The object of God's love is always those who, are, who have provoked him. I don't know if you caught this in Jeremiah 31, but there's this 
there is this sense it's coming a promise of restoration at the end of God's exile, his deliverance of his judgment to his people. Do you understand that that deliverance of judgment was, again, as disproportional as the second commandment tells us God's actions are? For 400 years, the people that God said of them, you're my son, I loved you, I called you out of Egypt, you're my bride, I adore you, I raised you, I found you abandoned in a field, and I raised you up to be the object of my love, I, I married you and I gave you the full riches of my kingdom, and you became an adulterous woman. You're my vineyard that was in barren ground, and I planted vines, and I nurtured them, and they grew, and then you gave your fruit away to everyone else. 400 years of that kind of rebellion and infidelity, God finally says to his people, now in my love, I'm going to discipline you. For 70 years, I'm going to send you into exile. But even there, you'll flourish and thrive, even under my disciplining judgment. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. The end of Jeremiah 31, this I love Mark brought this up again. God says again and again and again. This is it's restoration upon restoration, around restoration. At the end of God's disciplining of his child and the restoring of his bride and the recovering of his vineyard, he doesn't hang it over them and say, I, I remember what you did. Do you remember what you did? Do you remember all the laundry? Love is not resentful. It is not irritable. It's not, it's not now short-tempered. It's not easily frustrated. God's love is not irritable or resentful. It identifies with those of us who are the worst and have nothing to offer. And as a result, it does not rejoice at long, wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you're in Christ, God's not frustrated with you because he doesn't get frustrated. He's patient and kind and bears all things. And then love, thirdly, is measured by what it gives and gives up. It doesn't parade itself around. It's not puffed up and it doesn't seek its own. Love is patient, kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is measured by what it gives and what it gives up. And the gateway to experience the love of God that satisfies is therefore through a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, you do not know the love of God. 
You will not know the love of God because the love of God is demonstrated for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That word means the, the, the sacrifice that takes away wrath. Why is God's wrath removed? Because in his love, he sent his son. In his love, his love is manifested in this. He sent his son to be the propitiation for his sins. And as a result, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. If you're faith is in Christ. This is what Jesus has promised you. In the same way the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. The love of God is manifested in this way. And as a result, it's shed abroad in our hearts. There will be a day when our particular gifts And contributions and strengths are no longer needed. For the bridegroom will have brought his bride a new home that he built, perfect in all its ways. Nothing left for the people of God to offer and to give. And on that day, faith, hope, and love Out of those three, it will only be love that remains. Oh, may we grow to taste more of this and to display more of it to each other. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table now, we would ask, feed us on your love. Don't just remind us as a token, but by your grace, empower these ordinary elements to do an extraordinary work of rooting and grounding us in your love for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.